Welcome to the Event Manager Podcast by Skiff Meetings, the podcast for curious event professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Nevsh, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Skiff Meetings. And in this episode titled Deep Dive into Hybrid Events, I have the pleasure of speaking with my friend Garrett Heikop, Executive Partner at Live Online Events. Our extended conversation runs for almost two hours, so make sure you pause and come back to listen to the best bits, but we dive real deep into hybrid events. We talk about things like why some types of events, particularly those that don't have an education or content focus, struggle to work as hybrid events or virtual events. We talk about why in the future, in-person events without an online option are really short-sighted unless they have a strategic and intentional reason for this. We talk about how sponsors are finding good ways of getting value from virtual and hybrid events. We talk about how events really are the best time and place to capture content for really any organization. And we cover five different styles of hybrid events that you may want to consider. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. Don't forget to check out the other episodes of the podcast on our website or through your favorite podcast service. Now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, welcome to the Event Manager Podcast by Skift Beatings. I am delighted to have my friend Garrett Heikop here with us today on the podcast. Welcome, Garrett. Good morning, Miguel. Glad uh, to be here with you. Garrett, we've, we've known each other for a long time. We've worked together on a number of projects. You are host, producer, part owner of live online events. You've gone through this amazing trajectory of creating, producing, hosting, and doing all sorts of things around hybrid and in-person and virtual events. I'd love you to start uh, to tell us a little bit about your journey with events. And particularly, I always like to start with kind of the first moment where you realized events were a thing particular business events and like where was your first contact with the business event industry and then take us through you know today if you will um go as fast as slow as you want to just let us know uh, a little bit about your 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 life so far in events <laughs> well thank you miguel let's invite our listeners to take a fresh cup of coffee <laughs> this, can, <laughs> this can take a while now I'll, I'll try to condense it a little bit but that moment you talk about that first encounter with the world of business events i remember very very vividly i was uh, graduated as an engineer actually at the technical university of delft and started my career in management consultancy we were uh, part of this like high profile class and we were educated very well and we were sent to companies to do all these kind of consultancy kind of gigs one of the things i came across a big national company who was moving their headquarters and i was in charge of that as a as a young ambitious uh, professional and i got a good click with the ceo of that company and he kind of liked uh, and we talked and we drank coffee a lot and i told him yeah one day i want to be an entrepreneur and uh, I, I really like to do stuff with events because during my university times, I'd been involved in organizing events for the student body and all that stuff. Uh, so I, I dropped that at some point. So 
the funny thing was this guy figured out this was a talent i was a talent so he offered me a job once twice i said no 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 i'm in this program i like it i stay so then when the uh, whole move of the headquarters was done he called me into his office and he said um, so uh i heard you like events so much right so now that this office is ready we need to open it and i want this the biggest i want this to be the biggest marketing event of the country in 2007 and you are going to do that for me. I was like, what? Okay. Later, one of my first key learnings was this is a horrible brief. What do you mean the biggest marketing event of the country? You can go all sides of that. So I had to go back to him. I was like, what do you actually mean? But okay. I was super excited. I got a big budget and, uh, and off I went. And that's actually when I realized working with uh, my first agencies, uh, event designers, suppliers, all that stuff that comes around. I realized, wait a second, this is an industry. You, you can, you can professionally work in events. That's what I want. So, uh, pretty soon after that job, uh, I, I quit my job and started as a freelance event professional. Uh, that was around 2008 and a little, uh, little history setting that was right after Lehman brothers fell and the whole events and marketing market just kind of dropped. And here I was as a young, ambitious guy, no network in the industry, no relevant experience, just a lot of drive. And um, that gave me the opportunity to then uh, walk around and uh, I started a little uh, tech startup. What's on? You might remember it as well. This was a digital uh, program information way before the world of event apps and all that stuff. We were a bit uh, ahead of the market, but we had a lot of fun in uh, trying to figure out how to bring technology into the industry. Yeah. So that was a. Uh, it was a, well, it was a, it was an app as well, but it was a screen, right? We could have information about events. Yeah. Rooms, things it, like was that a, it was amazing, amazing vision behind it. We said, we need to make use of the cloud, right? Real time information sharing, regardless of the end device. So you, you could have your central, uh, event information in one place and then it could dis be displayed on mobiles, on TV screens in the venue, on your website, all the same information, not the same place. Well, uh, it was really hard to explain that concept to people before the times of mobile apps, cloud, and everything we know now. So, uh, but it was a lot of fun, and it allowed so me. So, also, I was tech in charge of entrepreneur is, is part of your career as well, which is I exactly think exactly you mentioned exactly. too much in your bio. But I think it's really interesting that you have that experience as well. Yeah, and what I really loved about that venture at that time is that, and and that this was also part of my education. Um, it it's not about what technology can do. It's about how you can make technology useful for, in this case, events. And that game I really, really loved. And, and that's why I saw a, a lot of people struggle. Also, other tech suppliers, they really come from this is what technology enables. Yeah, well, dive a little bit into the world of events and figure out what events need. And if you can tie those two together, then you might have something at your hands that's really useful. So. I love that. Uh, to be honest, in that team, I was responsible for sales and marketing. And one of the things I started to do is step on the stages of the different industry events like IMAX and like all the others and uh, do a talk on social media it was almost coincidental because our, our what's on tool also had like a little Twitter twitter ticker tape in it this was now 2009 2010 twitter was really becoming a thing in the events industry and I, I knew how that worked and i could explain that and made that a little fun 
And uh, one thing led to another that uh, after three, three years, we kind of dropped the whole what's on thing. It didn't really fly. I don't know why. Probably a lot of failures on our side as well. But I did get a lot of fun in being on stage and doing the social media talks. And uh, my business partner at the time, Donald Rose, he had a lot of fun in kind of uh, tweaking and designing stuff. So uh, that's when we launched How Can I Be Social, the first ever social media consultancy firm for uh, events and conferences. And uh, that was uh, some good fun years in the middle of the social media revolution. I was able to write a book about that and a lot of stuff. You and I worked uh, a lot together at that time. But in parallel, we are now talking about 2010, 2011-ish. A few things happened. Internet speed came up. YouTube became more mature. Live streaming technology was more and more available and feasible with the internet speeds at the time. Ten years later, you can barely think of that being an issue, but it was an issue back at the time. I mean, those and are kind of like the pre-existing or the, the, the kind of new conditions that enabled hybrid and all sorts of things to happen, right? Exactly. Kind of that was what I was getting at. It was Twitter was a big thing. Hashtag event profs was a big thing on Twitter and, and it created this kind of international community of, of people who were thinking ahead and excited about new possibilities in the events industry. And around the hashtag events profs, um, some experiments started to happen with hybrid events. And uh, I, I happened to be part of that very early group and we had a lot of fun and we tried a lot of stuff. Ruth Janssen was uh, essential in that development as well. We did uh, different kind of experiments. It was the event camp series of, uh, of events together. Out of that, we ended up at uh, the Fresh Conference, Maarten van Est, who launched that. And there was also a lot of experimentation going on with both event designs, but also event technology and bringing those together. And that's where we really started to play that game of hybrid events, where we said, okay, live streaming is a technology, but how do we make live streaming fun? How do we create an experience for someone who is not physically at the event that is attractive, that is sticky, that is worthwhile. And uh, well, there we kind of learned a few of the basics that I think are still very true for anyone involved in the hybrid events today. It's interesting. I was just thinking how, if you were to plot a timeline, do you have any idea in comparison to live streaming from the gaming perspective and e-gaming and that things? Do you have any idea? Like, was this before all that or was e-gaming in I that, would say in yes. that sense? Okay. So no, now, really now, now you apply later. to my no, now you apply to my knowledge as the engineer, and this is <laughs> all about CPU computer capacity. And and you might be aware that gaming requires a lot of resources from the computer. So online gaming is kind of the next step, both for the computer and also for bandwidth and all that stuff. On so no, no, that revolution was definitely I would say about five to eight years later. So like in the second half of the 2010s to 2020. But it's important, right? Because I think where we are right now, particularly with the the, the the virtual events pivots during the pandemic and boost, a lot of the hardware that I'm using right now, like I'm using a HyperX microphone. This is a gaming microphone. <laughs> the reason it's got a big red light on it is because it's designed for gamers. So I feel like most of this sort of like home style hardware, which is enabled people to have kind of home studios all around the world, is only really possible because of this big E 
gaming and, and kind of live streaming revolution, right? It's sort of, it, it kind of collides Agreed. in the last few years. Agree. I agree. It was a, definitely a big technological push. And um, if it's funny, if, if we continue this into from my introduction to the history of hybrid events, but those go a little <laughs> bit in parallel. Um, what you saw is that actually hybrid events were named the number one trend in the events industry. I remember in, in 2013, 14, 15-ish, maybe. That's about the time when we also went full on with live online events. Gerdy Schroeders and I came together. Gerdy was already experimenting with this. And besides hybrid events, also event reporting, social media reporting for events. Since 2010, uh, I was on the side. We both worked together on projects. And in, in 2014, we, we really joined forces because this was a big thing. And you saw a lot of big corporations going hybrid with their sales and marketing events. Uh, a lot of people... But now I realized after knowing what came after, that was a bit of the gimmick thing, right? This was the new thing in events and uh, conferences. Let's try it. Everyone wants something new all the time. So this was the new thing. So what I never got my head around is that after three years, this hype kind of went by. It, it died out. Uh, either corporations kind of did it internally and then for really low cost, and I would say from a design perspective, really crappy. But hey, if this is something you do a lot with your international corporation, I can imagine you're not slamming a lot of money onto that every month. Uh, and and the, on the association side, the, the perk or the new thing was a bit gone. So they moved on to then the next big thing in tech, which was probably the event app or uh, whatever. And those, those were kind of... Um, those were in competition, it seemed. So by the time we hit 2017, 18, 19, our company, Live Online Events, was also more and more transitioning. We still did hybrid events, but we also went big into content production, right? So video, promo videos, uh, podcasting, event reports, anything related to online content at events, whether this was really live, live on a live stream, or just on social media or surrounding. Well, and then <laughs> uh, I think if we're there already, uh, uh, March 2020 hit and we were kind of uh, pulled off uh, our chairs like, uh, hey, uh, we literally did in March 2020, we pivoted events in three days. No, not, let's not say multiple events. One event, obviously you can only, only do this once <laughs> in three days, but um, the whole thing locked down. They had their big two-day conference uh, the week after. And on Monday, we started uh, talking and working. And on Thursday, Friday, we were two days live online. Wow. That's quite. That's, but this that's is a, a virtual whole... event, eh? Okay. Yeah, this is a virtual event then, because this is what happened in the pandemic. Everybody learned that there is a way to bring an audience together fully online as well. I'm not saying yeah. that's preferable. I'm not saying that's better, but <laughs> it is a means of communication. I was just thinking as you were talking that if we were to plot a graph, or three graphs in my mind of kind of um, hardware and software capabilities. Um, yeah, relatively steady, maybe exponential, but relatively steady growth. Possibly during the pandemic, if you look at software by itself, that definitely has a peak, right? You have these the tools platforms. Can... A lot of people dived into the platforms, improved platforms, because all of a sudden, remember, and this is also again, if I look at the industry, all that venue budget, so to say, all the budget mm -hmm. that normally went to the venues and to the catering now all of a sudden was available for the platforms and, and they, in some cases, took advantage of that. Let's, let's try to stay diplomatic here. <laughs> no, let's, let's jump in. I mean, I mean, if you want to, uh, 
did you see no, examples it, of platforms kind of asking for way too much money for what they're providing? Yes, I've seen things happen in the market and budgets and, and quotations being made that it, but also let's, let's also look at the meeting owners and planners budgets being spent on stuff that I think, how can you ever uh, make that justified? But again, like I said, the, the budget was on the table, right? Because normally the, the, there's a lot of costs involved with venueing and catering and all that yeah. stuff. So. Think Do the you money still see this moved. now, though, or is this something that sort of? No, that's flipped. what I'm getting to. Let's 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 date this podcast. We are now in uh, September 2022, and what was the news also on Skift meetings in the last six months? That all of a sudden, all these big platforms that came up in the last two years were laying off people, and the budgets were slashed. Well, yeah, makes sense because earlier this year, a lot of things were possible again. A lot of people went back to physical meetings, so that budget is now back to venues and catering. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have to say for mine, I think it's more complex than that. And we could probably do a whole of podcast course. just on I, I agree. I agree. I, I am simplifying. I'm fully aware sure. of that. Yeah. I, I guess the, the point I wanted to make is that, that there's, you know, virtual platforms will say, hey, we have these costs, you know, there's streaming servers, there's things that happen that I think it's easy for uh, planners to assume that everything just shows up. You know, you're used to kind of turning on Zoom mm -hmm. and having 500 people mm -hmm. on Zoom and it just works. And mm -hmm. it's not so easy, you know, when you do it in a platform, et cetera. So, so there's certain things that have to happen, especially service and kind of making sure everything happens. So there are hard costs there. Uh, on the flip side, I think from the attendee perspective, I think attendees are very used to if there's food involved, if there's a room involved, if there's a physical kind of AV involved, you understand kind of what you're paying for. When you pay for a virtual event, it's much more abstract. And I think maybe that'll change over the years. Agree. But there's this weird kind of like, wait, I just turned on Zoom and this works. Why am I going to pay, I don't know, $200 to be on this virtual event? Like that doesn't make sense in people's heads. So I think when it comes to budgets and value or value perception, it feels like we're still finding our feet when it comes to hybrid and, and virtual events. All right. So Miguel, let's make this podcast a little bit provoking, right? That's in the end, uh, more interesting for listeners. I would say we spoke to each other last week in the event design summit. If you think from a design perspective, I would argue that a virtual participant doesn't need that much mirrors and smoke in terms of platform. And now I'm going to kick somebody, some people in the shins, I'm aware. And yes, I've also seen beautiful platform solutions and it works smooth and it's almost an experience. But let's be honest, for the majority of the events who just want to reap the benefit of the opportunity to take the walls and the roof of their physical meeting, a online technology that provides a camera feed, good audio, and an opportunity to do some light interaction, whether it's in chat, one-on-one on one-on-multi, -on -one on -multi, and some polling, is basically everything you need. Because from there on, it depends really on what you do with it. Do you have good content that's suited for online on that camera feed? Does the person who is on your stage or on your camera say something on that audio that makes sense? And have you created small interactions via chat or polling that are actually fun and engaging your audience? All the other stuff is just, I mean, it's nice, but to me, it's not essential to have a valuable virtual participation in either a hybrid or a virtual event. I, I think you make some great points and I, I tend to agree with you. 
I see, I see there being sort of three forces pulling in somewhat opposite directions. I see the production AV platform people kind of going, hey, you, what you need is a video feed that looks really good. And you need to go into like vMix and do all these fancy things and get the speakers, all that. And that's what's going to make it amazing. I see mm -hmm. the content people, particularly kind of like, you know, the specific medical content, that kind of thing, pushing towards what we need is the real experts. So we need content curation. We need this thing over here. And then I see the kind of hosting, moderating, facilitation people. What you need is real interaction and design of interaction between people. And I, I feel like, you know, the ideal is probably to get a balance of all three. All right. Those three the, don't the, necessarily the magic agree. Is in the the uh, the magic is in in the in the center of those three circles if you make these three circles and then they they coincide in the middle because all of it is true but all of it can also compensate each other so let's go to your circles again i agree that a very well av technically produced live stream let's say television like enhances the experience of a virtual participant especially if the if the importance or the relevance or the urgency of the content for this participant is not so high right because all of a sudden we talked about that scale from information to experience if there's less relevance urgency for the content then obviously experience becomes more important to keep me engaged and 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 a great av quality tv style production is then part of an experience so spot on they are right but each planner or designer needs to determine where am i on that scale so how important is it for me and this is already also related to budget on the content side it's the same thing some events do not lean as much on content as they think right especially pre-covid a lot of events were out there just for people to get out of the office to have a nice trip to and i'm i'm not uh, undermining the value of that. It's very valuable. But the content is, in some of the cases, almost a little bit of an excuse to make sure that people can justify the time and the effort and the spend to come to the event. Is there a virtual equivalent of that or an online equivalent of that? Is that when the video production is really fancy, but there's, you know, things aren't that interesting that are happening in the, in the, in the video? I, I think those are the virtual events that fail. Right, the one, the ones that were traditionally much more about the experience, the networking, the traveling, to getting out of the office together or or whatever, and were not that strong or important on the content. Content as an excuse, let's coin that phrase. If you take <laughs> that to the virtual world, that's gonna fail. On the other hand, there are definitely summits, medical or scientific conferences on which the content is the key spearhead of what's happening there. And for those, back to that scale of AV quality versus content, if the content is urgent and relevant and important to the participant, you can get away, you can have great Zoom webinars, Zoom meetings, all that stuff who are low tech, right? We do a, a, a monthly um, uh, Ask Me Anything series on YouTube. I am Zooming with a leading expert in a certain industry. We kick off the conversation. We broadcast live on YouTube. And it's been going for three years now, 28 episodes. And, and people love it. It's super low tech, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it is what it promises. It's nice. It's fun. It's, and that's, I guess that's what we also got stuck in in the last two years. In the last two years during the COVID pandemic, virtual events 
had to be the replacement of a physical event. Yeah. And so, I would be the first to argue it, that is what it never could be. Right? Let, let that sink in a little bit. A virtual participation is, could be a very good alternative for a physical event, but it's not a replacement of. And, and I think that was what a lot of us were struggling with during that COVID, right? When virtual was the only option. Hmm. Uh, and I think that so, has led to some <laughs> interesting experiments. Would you say then that it is, if, a, if an event is content light, an in-person event is content light, then it yeah. doesn't really work virtually it's really really challenging and uh, for those listeners who weren't part of the event design summit last week we we talked about this scale and let me underline again i'm saying scale i'm not saying opposites i saw some conversation in the chat about that the scale from information driven to experience driven and and anything in between but but anything any event or any objective that is really leaning on sharing information, education, those are very suitable for online participation. Let's face it, a presentation and ask me anything. Uh, just me sitting here with, with some notes and, and, and learning and educating. I'm the first to say that you learn much more skills by doing or exchanging with people. That's fine, but it's not always an option. And then the more the experience becomes more important, whether it's the serendipity meetings, whether it's the doing business with looking each other in the eye, whether it's really working together on a new innovation, on a project plan in a working group, that stuff, especially if you don't know each other yet, um, works really well physically. I'm, I'm, yep. You see, I'm walking a little bit on eggs with my words because otherwise the next one is going to come. Oh, I have had great working <laughs> groups online. Yes, yes, it's possible. But it's just, especially yeah. with people you don't know, it's much easier to do a physical kickoff and then do a, a series of virtual, right? That, that might be yeah, uh, working sure. really well. I mean, you know, I have a, my, I'm a living example of that. I worked with uh, Skift meetings for a year before I met anybody uh, for my team personally. And as soon as I met everybody in person, I felt much more part of a bigger thing exactly. than just exactly. working on, on a job by myself. So I think it's, I think the, so, that happens for everybody. Yeah. So let me add two things in, to, to round up this conversation. One optimistic thing. Well, yeah, and both are positive messages, but I think that is the core of physical, the future of physical events is that creating the new connections right and making feel making people feel belong and together yet after that a lot of work or information sharing all that other stuff can be also done very well online and the other thing i think is hopefully positive but a bit of a challenge let's uh, let's say it like that i believe that in 2022 and after if you choose to create a physical event on top of which you do not create a virtual participation layer, i.e. a hybrid event, I think you're making yourself unnecessary exclusive. And as long as that is a design choice, then it's fine. If you're saying we are doing this conference, this event, this kickoff, this summit, and it's for a very targeted, very exclusive event, it's fine let's do a physical let's make them do all the effort of traveling and getting here and getting out of the office it's a choice but a lot of people who are working in events designing events financing events have an objective of reaching as many people in the community as they can 
well, let's face it, then all that investment that you place into that physical event, I would say you're, no, I won't say you're crazy. It would be a great missed opportunity if you do not leverage that into an additional layer of, of audience in a virtual world. Well, I'm glad you, you went there because I, I know we wanted to also cover this idea of what is a hybrid event. Um, yeah. And let's let's cover that. I I have mixed feelings about this question because I feel to some extent it's a bit of a, we go around in circles and, and do we need to it's have semantics. an exact definition? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes and no. Let, let's, before we spend a few minutes on this, agree that this is semantics. Mm -hmm. But what I notice is that a lot of people have different definitions of hybrid events and then it becomes difficult to have a good design conversation or to get a budget together or to to be successful in it to me i take the definition as broad as possible where i say any occasion occasion can be anything any type of event where both a physical and an online audience are involved or targeted or part of some people I've encountered walk around the globe who believe that the only hybrid event that exists is an occasion where both the physical and the online audience have the exact same program experience or whatever. And to them, I just say, well, that is a flavor of a hybrid event. For me, that is not the hybrid event. But uh, I've, I've, I've been into... Uh, interesting discussions with some people about that. So I learned from that. Let, let's at least clarify what my definition is and then they can choose whatever sure. they find their definition. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, some people have this argument of like, what is a real hybrid event? And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess it's kind of the same conversation. But yeah. I think when we spoke uh, last week, I got, I got the feeling that, you know, you've seen, I wouldn't say you've seen it all, but you've seen a lot more than many people have that have been doing in-person and virtual events and hybrid events. And and it's more kind of saying, like, like I, I got the feeling you were saying we don't really need to force this, right? It's about designing experiences. You can have interactions between online and offline audiences, but it's important to design those intentionally and to kind of make those work and not sort of force this copycat of, of, of an in-person event onto a virtual event. Is that, is that your feeling? Yeah, I think you uh, summarized that very well. I think that is key. And it's a message I've, I've been able to repeat on, on the SCIF platforms as well. I truly believe if, if we really, and it's a little bit abstract, I have a, have a ton of examples for you later as well. But if we go really abstract and say, we look at this occasion event, conference, trade show, whatever type of event it is, let's Let's face it, this is a means of communication. This is something that belongs in the communication mix of emailings, advertising, website, uh, social media, event. It's, it's just another form to communicate with a target audience, i.e. your employees, i.e. your potential clients or current clients, your, your members of your association, whatever. It has some specific characteristics. It uh, requires a lot of time and energy and resources, both from you as an organizer, as from the participant to all the way get there. Um, that means it also has some uh, characteristics in terms of attention, effect, uh, potential of transformation, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a super interesting 
means of communication. But if you look at it like that, it also starts to make sense that then if you add a virtual component where you reach people to a website, to a live stream, to a live chat, to social media, you then realize, oh, wait a second, I'm just actually adding other means of communication to that same target audience. And that's when I really get to a point, ah, wait a second, but then these audiences are so different, right? Here we have the people who are physically there, they travel, they're in the room, they have other sensory experiences. And here we have the people who either are not allowed to travel because they're in a tier in the organization that is not allowed to come to the event, or they don't have the budget, they don't have the time, the security reasons, whatever. That alone already makes these people so different with different needs, with different metrics of success, with different attention spans, with different budgets. You know, you, if, if you would do a proper marketing persona of these, they're so different. I think you would immediately understand. I then also need to design a different experience for them that caters to their specific needs and circumstances. Yeah. I think that, that that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah, you're talking yeah, about because now I'm saying as if it's fully two events, we're still talking about hybrid events. What makes it hybrid? Well, we still do that around the same occasion, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's our annual conference, whether it's our big corporate events, whatever. So the occasion is kind of the linking pin between these two audiences. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in the idea that you build up to something, right? And that's where yeah. the hybrid really works because some of the examples or some of the ideas that you shared uh, on the hybrid side is, is that idea that the online can be at any time, right? The, the time frame of the online audience is very, is much more flexible or can be experimented with. You can do lots of different things. And I, and I really like that. I really like that idea that you can open up to all these different options. But at the same time, I do fear that if you don't give people this kind of peak of attention, this moment in time where right. everybody's going to be focused on this thing, it gets dispersed, right? And then it, it sort of becomes like, why should I be online on the 12th of September to do exactly, this? Exactly, exactly. No, so so here, what, what you just touched on is the power of hybrid events. This is why hybrid events, and again, I said on the, the virtual summit, hybrid events, let's all realize people, this is a production term. Eh? We, the planners, mm -hmm. designers, suppliers, consider something a hybrid event. A participant is just either a physical or an online participant. They, they don't know what hybrid is, or at least it means less to them than to us but the great opportunity you have as a planner what what makes a hybrid diff, hybrid event different from a podcast a webinar or some other virtual event is the momentum of the physical because yeah. chances are huge that you are targeting both the physical as the online attendance to the same community so people will see people in their environment on social media posting that they're traveling to the event, whether it's a national or international event, that they're going there, that they're in this beautiful scenery. There is momentum around the physical event, and that is what you really try to capture. So that's I, I'm a strong believer in that the online or virtual side of the hybrid event is on the same day, on the same moment. That That is like we, we, we consider about four or five formats of hybrid events, and in the first three, everything is still happening at the same time and to me the the, the most classic fundamental format of a good 
virtual layer on the hybrid event is is the 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 way sports is being televised right mm -hmm. there is the stadium there's a pitch there's a match going to happen starts at time x and around that we create something to lead you in we have a studio show where we kind of preview what's going to happen we kind of set the scene we set the context then cameras turn to the pitch watch the match during a break maybe even they we switch back to the studio we analyze we obviously we add a little commercial break for our sponsors and then uh, we go back and, and then on. I think that was the format we pretty soon started experimenting with at, for example, Fresh in 2013 and 14. And to me, that's kind of still one of the fundamentals that is can create something really attractive for, uh, for a virtual participant. So I guess, are you saying then that um, a relatively simple way for people to think about hybrid events is to think about it being the TV transmission of their event. Exactly that. And then we also get to a point because I realized about 20 minutes ago in a conversation, you start talking about the three forces that we're pulling. And we talked <laughs> about two technology production and content, but you also mentioned the hosting and engaging. And that is where that really comes into play, that you have a dedicated host with like a, an expert on the side. Really look at any sports match at your television. They have done this for 50 years, I think. They know how to keep a remote audience engaged to the stadium. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think part of me is hosting engaging. I think that that interaction with the audience um, I feel like that's a really important bit, probably one of the most underdeveloped bits or not too many events take that that seriously. I feel like most events that I've seen uh, go virtual focus much more on the production and then on the content side. And I feel like that's a sort of third element that gets a little bit neglected, but I've also been at events that are all about interaction and mm -hmm. kind of almost not really ignore, but kind of say like, we actually don't need a lot of content. If like, like an ask me anything, like you just talking about, right? That's very much about the yep. interaction. It's like, it's not like you've prepared hours and hours of study to, to be there. You've just said, Hey, I'm here. I want to engage. Let's talk. And maybe I don't know how much video production, I'm sure it doesn't look bad, but I'm sure you're not going into a massive TV studio, et cetera, to do that either. Right. So you're kind of focusing on that third and kind of saying, Hey, this event, is just about interaction. It's just about kind of engaging with people. Yeah, and let, let's remind everyone that that is the magic of live events. Eh? The whole difference between a pre-recorded podcast or video and a live event, whether it's physical or online, is the magic of unpredictability. And you yeah. create the unpredictability by giving the audience the floor, because as soon as that happens, we create something that is only happening because these people are at this moment in time together, whether that is virtually or physical. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, fascinating. So I mean, it's hybrid events is such such an interesting um, such an interesting area. Do you do you do you predict or do you anticipate that we're going to kind of see this? peak of interest. We talked about the chart earlier and we didn't actually, I, I, I was thinking about three charts and the third one was actually the, the, the interest in hybrid events, you know, and you, like you yeah. said, like 2000, from 2010 to 2013, they were kind of a new thing on the block and they were excited. Yeah, I would say all the way to, to, to 15, 16, it was a big thing. But then it dropped I didn't off. feel like there was a massive peak. There was sort of like a, you know, the geeks among us are experimenting and doing things and, and you yeah. hear this thing bubbling, right? But most it events was part of were, the let's let's try something new 
let's make this hybrid. Yeah. yeah. And we saw a lot of big events, you know, PCMA, MPI, you know, within the event industry that they did yeah. live streams. But also big association stuff. conferences. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't, they weren't actually necessarily calling them hybrid, but there was a sort of a live, there was a streaming element to them. And then you sort of, I, I guess it sort of lost interest at some point, and I, I can't really explain why. I don't know if you have any theories of why, like 16 well, well, what to I said, my theory was, was little... yeah, then we tried that for two, three years in a row. And now, and, and, and let's face it, it's pretty expensive. Yeah. Eh? It's, yeah. it's uh, the, the business model is one of the most challenging thing because you have double the target audience, but also, oh, not double, but you have a very significant additional cost for that yeah. virtual participant. And definitely at that time, 2015, 16, there was no way you were gonna make people pay for that, right? Mm -hmm. So it was always, pre-COVID, the hybrid event was, was mostly the marketing of the next edition. And you would always yeah. see that happen. So people who attended virtually said, oh my God, this is such a great event. I wanna be part of this next time. But there's a challenge for the event planner because those attendees of next year do not cover your budget of this year, right? So there was also always this imbalance that you had to have some kind of investment budget available for experimentation or new stuff or marketing. Mm -hmm. So that's where these 2014 to 17 hybrid events were paid from, I think. And when yeah. the business model didn't become sustainable, that, that lost interest and the next new thing came on. Do you think that is changing? Are you seeing events that have a solid business model for the virtual as well? Like, can events monetize the virtual audience adequately? Yes, I would say very well. Um, it's, let, let's start with a, a specific niche. Any people and mainly associations dealing with permanent education uh, requirements, mm -hmm. they can very easily capitalize on the education that they make virtual. Because there, the business case for the participants is so easy. I either have to like go off my office and travel all the way to where, or can, I can just from the comfort of my own home, get my education, get my points, obligations, that's all set. Um, so but uh, that is this a mean like there's a merging then of like events, and in this case, the virtual type of events with continuous online education, they start to blur a little bit? I would say yes. I would say yes. And obviously the conferences where this was a, a part of was already there was already a very information driven information sharing type of audience again so they're very suitable for this as well mm -hmm. again let's not forget many of these scientific conferences which are accredited for permanent education points still have a big element of the school trip let's get out of the office perk eh? so uh, mm -hmm. let, let's not ignore that this is kind of an under under the radar force that we cannot openly talk about, but should be aware about. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah I, I think that's always a big factor. Um, I do think some academic and many conferences have things to discuss that only happen in that room and demonstrations that only happen Agreed. in that space. But Agreed. that's a minority, right? That's 10% or that's yeah, and, and let's face it, that exclusive exclusivity, that safety can also easily be technologically created online. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's an element because the element of trust comes on and you better trust someone when you look them face to face in a closed physical room. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Next type of audience. Uh, so, so permanent education requirements is the easiest one. But something else has happened due to the last two years of immense virtual events, good and bad. Let's focus on the good. 
is that also the sponsor side has experienced that there are opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've also seen very big failing things, things that do not work for corporate sponsorship. Sponsorship is still pretty tough. On the other hand, let's go to the to the fundamental classic means of televising events. Like I already mentioned, they just have big commercial breaks around the the uh, the, the the sport match break. So, I think sponsorships you uh, or, or or company sponsoring companies are now also warming up to the idea that they can just fill in their sponsorship with a thirty second commercial clip, and then they're willing to put cash on the table for that. And I guess what that's I'm, a good makes a good business case for having this TV style production because you're opening up for these TV style sponsorships. If you don't yeah, have exactly. a TV style production and you try to just stream sort of semi independently, then you don't yeah. have those moments. This program is brought to you by sponsor XYZ. Um, yeah, now I just you I, mentioned I you mentioned you. Yeah, no, I just I guess I guess we haven't jumped into the examples. I mean, you shared a few examples um, at the event last week, and I thought they were really interesting and well received. Of course, we're in audio only, so it makes it even doubly challenging. But are there any examples from your kind of recent uh, experience uh, with hybrid events that you wanted to highlight as successful and you know that we could kind of take some learnings from? Yeah, let me let me go through a few examples. I, I got my thought back, which which I just lost. Uh, I wanted to add on the sponsorship thing. The, the the compelling argument that you can sell to your sponsors is that when they are or were a sponsor for your physical event, they only have exposure to your community on that one day on that one place. The beauty of being a sponsor of the virtual side of the event is that you take away the factor time, because. Mm -hmm one of the other basics maybe not for everyone that's already there but to me a basic is that once you invest in the cameras and the av production and and televising or whatever recording all that content of your event the easiest thing is to create a business model out of the content on demand side of things and obviously your sponsors can be very easily be part of that as well so there again their reach and brand awareness and exposure is much bigger in a hybrid event than just in a physical event and again, a great business case made there for doing something good when you do exactly. online, exactly. right? And and not something that maybe only makes sense at that moment in time, but something that you can reuse and that has value for the audience. Right. Ongoing. It was uh, my third tip in the, in the top three tips uh, video from 2021. Think about the repurposing of the content before your event because then you can very easily like uh, record little transitions or different intros for the post events whatever you can use your event as a content production day because that's actually what it should be hmm. um, just a little addition on the on the sponsorship side and hopefully helping planners and meeting owners to actually make that sell a little bit easier than uh, than it sounds yeah. By the way, when you say that means why it's so important to do things good, I hope with that good, you weren't referring to expensive AV production quality, because creative sponsorship exposure can also be very well done in a Zoom webinar. Eh? I mean, those little commercial breaks can also be part of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's just an argument for 
thinking about things in the long term. You know, it's not necessarily I agree. And I, I think the production is important. Mike? Yeah, exactly. I think it's yeah. important, but it, the most important thing is to think about it long term. And I think we've talked about this before. When we're creating even live streams for Facebook, the ideal situation is that that somebody can watch that in a month or two months time and still get something out of it, right? If it's something that only really makes sense at that moment, then it better be really popular and the whole internet better be watching because or else it feels a bit <laughs> pointless, right? Agree, fully agree. And, uh, oh, we're getting such in a, in a rabbit hole, but to build on that, and there is also, unfortunately nowadays, a little value for, let's call it, hygiene social media content meaning that people almost expect it to be normal that if an event is taking place there's some real-time coverage on the social media channels mm -hmm. if only like some some video reels or whatever of what is it like or some photos of what is it like to be there uh, mm -hmm. so that that is something you also need to think of in your content planning right some stuff need to be fast and quick out there the other stuff yeah. needs to be more thought through and be available for the long term long term yeah, let me let me just drill down a little bit on that and 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 yeah, we oh. get to the example soon, dear listener. I know. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So I, I recently came across a story that we're, I think we're going to cover, uh, which is all about the speed of publishing content. And the idea being that, you know, doing hybrid live stream, live streaming a whole bunch of content can be very expensive, especially if you have multiple rooms, etc. But if you can find a way to capture it with, you know, good enough quality and release it same day or kind of like next day, when that attention peak is still there, the chances of your audience consuming that content go up by something like five, ten percent. Sorry, five, ten times, because mm -hmm. it's that kind of peak of attention. And I, yeah. I've just wondered if if that was your experience. If you agree, if that's your experience, and if you've seen examples of this really working well. And, and I'm kind of saying like, hey, not everybody can afford to multi-stream everything, but let's let's capture it quickly and get it out there. Is that your advice yeah. as well? Well, I'm confused by you mentioning the multiple rooms, because if you mention multiple rooms, I immediately think on a, a conference style thing. So I also think on a purpose or an objective of education. Yeah. And for those type of events, I would say having everything real time out there would let no, let's flip this. Yes, it's an opportunity, but also a huge investment. So I think you can afford educational content on demand to arrive later as well, because this stays relevant for a much longer time than only that day. Yeah. However, what I do agree with you is that during the event, you want to capture the momentum, perhaps to sell to your video on demand platform or to kind of capture that awareness and attention and then um, real people into your community. And therefore, 
and I'll, I'll be careful not to make this a promotional talk, but with live online events, we do a lot of these social media reporting teams. Like last week, it was the uh, big European uh, dermatology conference. And we were there with a team of a, a videographer, a photographer, uh, three social media um, content posters and interactors and like a, 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 a senior editor who was overlooking that whole team and they were yep. dang, 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 all over the place interviews um atmosphere everything and just filling the social medias and especially with all these stories and reels nowadays hey, it's only uh, 24 hours uh, available yet like i said that's what i meant with the hygiene factor if it's not there people get this little strange. eerie feeling like is this thing even taking place yeah, that sometimes happens to me, actually. As you know, I'm not someone who spends a lot of time on Instagram, and I go and check out the Instagram account of a certain event, and then I don't see anything, and it feels very strange. No. And then I remember, oh, yeah. Because the in, the, in their urgency to make all these stories, they forget actually to do the regular posts as well, right? Exactly. And then there's nothing left. Yeah. So you kind of say, yeah. oh, that feels a bit sparse. But I think if you're following and if you're engaged, then it's a whole different story. Yeah, but I think you make, you make an excellent uh, point. So it's it's yeah, this whole thing about being very fast in publishing, I think makes sense. But what I understood from what you were saying is that, yes, it makes sense, but you should probably select which content it makes sense. It yes. doesn't make sense to publish yes. all sessions immediately, even if you can. It's more hey, about, and, hey, and you are you are quoting research. So I'm a bit careful because this is just my line of rational thinking. Mm -hmm. But if I go back to my basics of the two different audiences with the two different needs, I would say educational se uh, sessions have a much longer shelf life than capturing the momentum of the excitement, which I want to use to reel in people to my community. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, even if it is proven research, I think we have to put things in perspective because even if it's much cheaper to record and publish than to live stream, there's still a big expense in trying to do many, many sessions at right. once, right? So it's important yeah. to select the ones that are important, as you say. And if it is continuing education credits, if that's the idea that it just becomes part of a a, a portfolio of online content, then it doesn't actually matter. I, I guess you're still going to get more views on things if it's up very quickly after it was recorded. So I think it still applies, but you have to probably measure out cost benefit ratio, like which ones are you going to prioritize? Right. And so what is the smart design in between? Let's capture on these features and make sure we have stuff available on demand super quickly for those who get excited by the social media covers or whatever and say, oh, I want to be part of this now. Okay, so for you, we got this track. Like, oh, okay, let's go to an example. One we mentioned in the, uh, in the uh, summit as well. At the um, ESOT conference, this is the European Society of Organ Transplantation. This is a pre-COVID example. We had, this is a um, three and a half thousand association conference. They have three big, almost plenary halls. That's how big they are. And they have this multiple, multiple breakouts, all these rooms where, where all these uh, different topics are being discussed, presentations being done. For the virtual side of things, we selected just the three main rooms to create the live streaming and the video on demand for. In the other rooms, a lot of stuff was also captured and recorded and made available on demand later. But that that had a much longer time frame. And yet at, at the three big rooms, what we did and that so one of them was selection of content. Are we going to live stream record everything? No, let's focus on the most important, the, bi the big sessions, so to speak. Yeah. Um, also still part of a, a marketing thought. Let's make sure that people understand how important this conference is so they come physically next time.
-hmm. Another innovation we designed in was that we said, okay, thinking about our target audience, which was in this case global, how are you going to work with the different time zones? We are all aware that there's this European one o'clock to three o'clock kind of sweet point where you should be able to get a, a global audience live at the same time. Yet, hey, why not give something else to people in either Asia or the Americas at the times when we in Copenhagen were in our hotel room? So we created a 24-hour live stream where we would live stream the main room during the day or room one and two. At the same time, everything else in two and three was recorded. So that was then talking about speed of publishing, as soon as the live live would stop, let's say at uh, 5.30 at the end of the day, the recording of room two was then being published all the way through the night, and then room three was added. And by the time we made that full circle, then we would rebroadcast the live stream of uh, room one, because now people in Asia would have woken up and they wouldn't have been able to see the afternoon of that. So that's how we stitched the whole thing kind of uh, around the globe. Why rebroadcast and not just publish and make available on demand during that time period? Yeah, because we want in, in, in marketing the virtual side of the event, we wanted to make it as simple as possible. And that came from a development. Now we dive a little bit back into the history of hybrid events. In the years before that, we really thought, okay, to an online audience member, we shouldn't market hey this is the online side of this event but we said hey this is a virtual event about topic a b or c because we would say virtual participants are interested in certain topics so let's gather them about that but what that led to was like this massively complicated timetable of then we're live here and then we're live on that and then we're live on that i said let's simplify and let's just say if you're curious about what's going on at this conference there's one URL and any time of the day that you are interested, click on the URL, be part of the event and then find in your timetable what you're watching and when the next thing is coming out. So, so again, much more modeled after a TV station. Uh, TVs yeah. don't go on blank during the night, right? They just keep running. Yeah, I yes, several things come to mind here. I remember at one point a few years ago, maybe like 10 years ago now, there was this whole idea of 3D TVs or kind of like watching a, a football game, a soccer game in 3D. Uh, and they were doing some experiments. I remember okay. Sky Sports were doing some experiments. And the idea was that you could sort of almost choose your camera and figure out like what you wanted to watch. And they had this going for a while and A, nobody would pay for it. And then they realized that nobody actually wants to play TV producer. What they want is nope. the produced feeds and they can sit back on their couch and really enjoy the game. So the fact that like each player had a camera on them, you know, hypothetically speaking, was a bit pointless because for the producer, it's useful. For the person watching at home, they're like, no, just give me the produced thing. So I think that's kind of what you're saying. I mean, TV directing is a skill. That director yeah. creates a story through the content or in this time to match. And this is, this is fun. We talked in the beginning of our conversation, if people are still there, about technology push. What is technologically possible and what is needed from a participant? I think offering 20 parallel streams is almost getting to that. On the one hand, you could say, well, this is the most personalized experience that we could offer. Yeah, well, just give me one experience that's really good or maybe two or three, whatever, but curate for me. And then you have as a, as a kind of a, um, a bait, you can say, well, you want to have access to all the other stuff, become a member, pay for our video on demand platform, whatever. And then there's much more time on your side.
Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, with the example you gave with, with Isat, um, you chose to only live stream the, the main stages. And I think there's a sort of a TEDx or TED factor to that where those stages look good, right? When you watch those right. videos, you're like, oh, cool, there's a big stage and there's a speaker and there's a very rehearsed presentation. When you're live streaming the breakout rooms and the smaller rooms, a lot of times, you know, there are darker rooms and there's somebody just standing mm, in the front of the room. Yeah. Exactly. And yes, you can, you know, spend a lot of money to make those rooms look better, but they're always going to be meeting rooms, right? They're not going to be big production stages with big lightings and all, and, and all that kind of thing. So, so I think there's an element of real, I guess, marketing as well, like protecting the image of the event where you're saying, hey, these ones are like live here. Yes, you can go into the real niche content, but that's going to be like an on-demand thing later on. Oh, Miguel, that's such a strong point. You need to think about what do you want your event to look like on the internet, right? Because that yeah. image is really going to determine what kind of feeling I get from it. Um, yeah. So I think uh, indeed, uh, I, if I would be designing a, a virtual, because again, this whole conversation that we have, Miguel, it's about event or hybrid event design, right? And in the mm -hmm. end, you cannot say this is the archetype of a house. This is design work, different preferences, different needs, all that stuff. So let's let's okay. again underline. I am sharing how I would design stuff in a in yeah. a kind of a general context and for case specific situations that might be specific needs. And one of the other things. We, one more thing. Hold on. Let me before we yeah. move on. I, so you you talked about you know live or, or kind of almost live having these big stages streamed, you know, impressive, like a TV, a main TV feed, let's say. Um, and I was kind of thinking, you know, some for the most of the people, I think that's going to be where they're going to go. Right. And I think that's what, what you were kind of saying. It's really important to have this like one point where they go and from beginner to kind of very expert, that that's a place to start. What about the people that are really looking for very specific content? Is, is there, do you see examples where there's ways of like capturing what they're looking for so that when that session becomes available you kind of kind of send it to them is that sort of part of the thinking there i like it it's smarter so what you're now saying this is smarter event marketing in a sense that that you try to profile your community by interest and really can target specific content to them i i referenced earlier briefly that we have about five different formats three of them all evolve around the same day but what you're now saying is very related to to a format where you pull you mentioned that earlier, where you pull also time apart of your different means of communications, where you, for example, say, we create a series of online events, let's say webinars or virtual events, whatever, uh, leading up to a physical combination of things. You could even say you are only allowed to or, or come to the uh, physical event if you participate in uh, three out of the five online events, wh whatever. And 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 that format then also allows you to do this, what you're exactly saying, Miguel, say like, we have five webinars up front. One is uh, fully focused on topic A, one on B, one on C, one on D. You're fine just going for B because that's your topic of interest and then come to a big physical event where we have A, B and C and D all at the same time and we have like a multidisciplinary conversation. Yeah, it's that, yeah, taking yeah. time, the online audience, time is much more flexible so you can play with that and kind of figure right. out different things out yeah yeah so so 
yeah and that's what i'm doing what you did you you threw a design challenge at me like saying mm -hmm. oh you're treating the the audience as one big mass what about if they have a specific interest well mm -hmm. okay so we can go into two directions either we do like we, we we already mentioned we do like 20 parallel streams so every niche kind of has their own thing massive budget massive complexity a lot of stuff going on or we say no let's be smart a virtual audience has time time has a different perspective i'm not bound by the limitations of having an audience only one two or three days so let's see if i can do it like that and i think this is what i like this is designing right yeah i always feel like you want to like okay so i'm the expert i'm looking for this one particular niche session or niche topic i go in and if i can see that there's i don't know almost like a, a placeholder for that recording and it's not available yet but ah. i can kind of say hey you know sign yeah. up here we'll let you know as soon as this thing is exactly. uploaded and edited that makes me feel good right because it's like ah it has what i need it's maybe not quite ready now so i'm not as happy but at least i know i'm being taken care of rather than just having like oh there's this big tv feed but i can't get to where i want to be right so i'm trying to like get the best of both worlds for 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 the people that are looking for that kind of content I love it. And it reminds me of a little hack we always used to do. Instead of making people register for virtual participation, we would just say, leave your email address here if you want to be notified when we go live. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. But again, we yeah. flipped it because we put it there as a service to them. And at the same time, we're capturing information and email addresses and anything we want from them. But um, absolutely, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good marketing, right? You're not saying give us your information because we want to have your information. It's we're going to make this useful okay. for you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, let's let's. Oh, this is the longest episode of the Event Manager podcast ever, I'm afraid. But let's let's do some more examples, um, because there's a nice bridge between what we did at Eastfield in 2019 and an innovative event we did in 2021, which is somewhat still in the in the COVID side, and that is the the concept of uh, hubs or co-locations or viewing parties. We have different names for them, but where we where we invite people, like in the Eastwood case, we invited sponsors. Here's another business model because uh, model because there was something uh, that was also being sold. We invited the sponsors or, or facilitated the sponsors to create a a physical event at their location in their country around a specific session that was being live streamed. And then we added some additional perks like uh, two-way communication with them. So we would also bring them into the, the physical room and people could wave. Let's not forget, this is something pretty simple, but it works for both the remote and the physical audience because the physical audience becomes aware wait a second, it's, it's not only me in this big room, but there's people around the world who are now also participating. And also, me, of course, for the remotes, they feel like, oh, we got on stage in Copenhagen, right? This is, this yeah, is fun. Yeah. Let, me, let me just ex yeah. like clarify, because I think it would be good to put some more meat on this before you go into your example. So this was, you're talking about ESOT. This was the three and a half thousand person conference in Copenhagen with the live yeah. streams, etc. And then you had, I think it was four locations in China where there was ten. a group ten. 10 okay but there was four yeah. on camera right and then there were other ones uh maybe in the photo you saw but in in in, in there were there were 10 locations uh, virtually okay. uh, connected with a two-way connection across china yeah. i think in china and they each yeah. had yeah. maybe a few hundred people in the room so it was a pretty big room in itself and then yeah. the i guess the head of each delegation uh in those rooms in china had the opportunity not 
as the speakers were live on the stage, but then the speakers were brought into a kind of TV interview hey, type hey, setting. Exactly. In the, in the classical, we are on a break studio, again, from the sports stadium. We cut back to the stands. Here the host is. In this case, this was me. And then there's the yeah. professors like from the stage. The star player was being interviewed. Yeah. And then the yeah. delegations yeah. from each of the cities in China were allowed to, or had the opportunity to ask a couple of questions from the not a player in this case, a, a transplant surgeon or someone like that, <laughs> a professor. So it was a really interesting dialogue and very much that hybrid, you know, you could argue that at that point, there is no in-person audience. So that's just a virtual event, but I don't want to get into semantics right here. I think that was a really smart use of, hey, professor just got off the stage delivering their keynotes. These people in China saw the keynote, they have questions they want to go deeper and because they're part of this sponsored opportunity where they're in these like hubs all over you know 100 person hubs or something they have the opportunity to ask questions specific to them and that provided i think incredible value for the people asking the questions and for the people in those rooms i, I realized you know the language was a bit challenging because you had this kind of simultaneous interpretation <laughs> happening and i think the questions it's always challenging to get really clear dialogue going in situations like that but i think it was an incredible use of everybody's time, which I think is the most important thing. Yeah, and, and a few uh, additional comments. Again, these people were physically hosted by the sponsor, eh? in this case, a, a medical company, a medical com or a, me a pharmaceutical company, I should say. They're always very interested in to get face-to-face -face contact with medical professionals as well. That was the one thing I'd like to add. And in terms of question asking, Besides this exclusive right to have a, a conversation with the professors in the, uh, in the offstage studio, uh, in general, for Q&A, that's the beauty of hybrid events. You can e very easily blend your physical and online audience through the uh, uh, the polling applications that are widely available, where people send in their questions on their mobile and give them a thumbs up. And now I start to talk as a, as a MC moderator of events. I actually start to prefer those also with my physical audiences because it allows much more people to enter into the conversation of Q&A. And I allowed, because not everybody is, is as uh, um, vocal to stand up in a big audience and raise their hand, but also it improves the quality of the questions because I now select the questions that have the most thumbs up instead of a random arm in the air of someone who just wants to share their own often slightly commercial kind of message and doesn't have a question. By the way, fellow moderators, there's a great way to put that down. If you have one of those, and it's mostly one of the first, you just then say, so what is your question? And then the rest knows that we do not <laughs> like <laughs> those type of interactions. I think I saw a cartoon recently that says, uh, you know, somebody stands up exactly doing what, what you're describing and says, I'm going to ramble on for two minutes with a <laughs> statement at a commercial statement masquerading as a question. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what it often is. Let's put those down. But again, so so back to the hybrid events, having these virtual Q&A tooling, uh, uh, whether it's in the event app, whether it's uh, separate, it, these, are, these are nowadays very simple. A lot of audience members have uh, have experience with it. So uh, it, it, it's a great addition. So And that is both open, whether you're physically or remote, it doesn't really matter. For sure. I want to move to a next example, which goes deeper into this concept of co-located events. 
during 2021 where everything was a bit wobbly about what was allowed what wasn't allowed what could could we do we had uh, an event for a big national association it had multiple objectives there was uh, um, education involved there was celebration involved there was an award show there was a quiz there was just bringing that community together multiple uh, multiple objectives or formats at the same time at that time the rule was that people were allowed to come together in groups to a maximum of 30 and another kind of design context parameter was that there was also like seven to eight uh sponsors friends of the association that needed some kind of exposure so this then led to a very uh, it's also not that new but it, a, a hub and spoke format where we would have a central studio where there was actually no physical audience at all you could have had some vips very easily in a little studio of course but in this case there was no physical audience there we had the speakers we had the ords we had the band we had the quiz everything was in a this was really almost uh, tv like then at the eight locations of the sponsors there was a co-located event where 30 of these people were then physically together they had the dinner the catering all the perks of that and there was throughout the program several times there was two-way or multi-way communication between us in the studio and the different locations located around the country um and i think that is a great format even you could also extrapolate that to an international setting of course few benefits um production costs at the physical location are lower because you don't have all these people there Cost is not the main drive here because this is a pretty expensive format. I'll tell you why in a second. But also in terms of, of traveling, sustainability, uh, but also, let's say, comfort for the participants. If you can travel regionally to a physical event or a smaller physical event instead of doing the big travel, that's much uh, more interesting. And also from the sponsors, they had these people in-house. Eh? It was at their office, in their location. That was a lot. Was this an in-house corporate event or...? No, this was an association event also. Association event, okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I find like the way you describe it to me sounds a little bit almost like the Eurovision, which which I always find yeah. is like almost like the, you know, the There, there were those kind of event. moments like, uh, yeah, hey, uh, we're now switching to how are you doing? And yeah, true, true. And hello, Sweden. How are you today? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but hey, um, let's not forget, Miguel, we are still talking about designing events using recognizable formats hey for your vision for all sake it doesn't matter people understand what's going on right it, it it can help for sure yeah and and you you mentioned cost was was quite high well, and I, I i can imagine well, right because lots of different well, transmissions it depends. Different again this is a production choice mm -hmm. when we go to the esalt example there we facilitated the hubs so we invited the, in this case, also sponsors to become a hub. We had like this information package here. This is what you should do. Be our guests. Well, at this uh, 2021 event from the production side, we took full responsibility for the co-located events. That means we also produced them. And then it becomes a bit of a different thing because then you now need to have people in all these different events and uh, uh, you cannot afford to let anything go wrong. While in the other example where you, let's say, facilitate with information and, and testing, if they mess up in the end, you can always say, well, okay, I told you everything. It's a pity, 
but it's it's your loss because somehow you didn't have your act together. So this is a little bit of a, a production strategy choice you have to make. How much responsibility do you want to take for the remote locations? No, I think that the really interesting kind of examples and uh, yeah variations. Um, yeah. And I guess what I always find interesting is they're so they're so different. I guess they're they're kind of like ticking different boxes, right? And and you can if you have all the production available everywhere, you could kind of always do everything. But it's really about which line do you take? Which choices do you make? Like what's most important? Is it the interaction? Is it the fact that they don't need to travel all over the world? And I think in this last example that you gave us is, I find that a really valid example for being more sustainable and also, you know, not forcing, particularly for like something like an internal company event, not forcing the whole company to travel to one location. You know, especially if people are working remotely, a lot of people working from home, asking them to travel to their closest kind of regional office and having a, a pretty big deal event there yep. may be just as good rather than, you know, all this expense and all this kind of, um, you know, waste to, to get people to travel all around the world to one location. Yeah, let me quickly uh, uh, um, uh, repeat the example I told you uh, last week in the summit, talking about corporate events. Um, this was a big two-day sales and marketing conference for a big international corporation. Obviously, the top 200 or so get, invo uh, get invited to fly all the way from uh, the world. These are the business group uh, directors or the business uh, group uh, marketing directors. Um, so the way this was run is plenary session, traditional uh, sports television format, right? I uh, had a very, and, and this can be pretty low tech. Eh? So just a high table and a few extra lights in the back of the room while the room fills up. Uh, I'm talking to either the meeting owner or someone who's been part of the thing. And we kind of lead in to new colleagues, what this event means or what they can expect or, or what the, the next two days are going to look like. Then as soon as uh, the, the director and the CEO and everyone gets on stage, we just broadcast stage. Uh, we do live Q&A through the means we said. Uh, I represent the voice of the ro remote audience in the room by reading off questions uh, which, which come in remotely. And I'm doing this rather quickly, but to me, this, this is basic level hybrid event, right? And then they had in the afternoon, and probably people involved in corporate events might recognize that, they had some kind of a, a marketplace where different either strategic projects in the company or business units who did something really creative were um, sharing best practices or updates or doing demonstrations. And they were a little bit struggling, like, how do we bring our virtual colleagues into that? And there we used a format that, that you and I have quite some experience with. We just had a, a roving camera with, a, with a, uh, a, a wireless camera with a mic and I just went in as their host being their embedded employee colleague by the way and, and kind of taking them literally from stall to stall doing a quick interview as, as if I were a participant consuming that marketplace right but now really being able to bring that virtual participant in they were able to chat with me to ask questions to give me little challenges like i remember at some point one of these marketplaces had a um, a challenge of who could jump the highest you had to like pick, take a sticky note and then jump and stick it as high as you could in the wall so here obviously they started rooting me on in the chat it's like oh gary do it for us so i wrote my sticky note virtual participants and actually then had to jump as high as i could did pretty well in the end we got second place but that and 
and later that resonated so much right everybody was like on their yammers and whatsapp groups and i was like, oh this was so much fun and i really felt part of it and uh, blah 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 so again an example where you with a creative format with relatively low tech but in this case let's not call myself a good but but someone who is able to bring a virtual audience into something you can create something really nice yeah i think these are great examples and i, I do you, I, is it common for you to do that kind of thing for a social media like like we've done in the past or is that kind of a less common thing to do these days nope it's back no, but, and, and, and we, we talk about our cooperations for uh, IMAX, the big uh, trade show here in the events industry. Um, I think a lot of people who listen to this might uh, be aware of that, but for those who are not. Uh, no, like I just mentioned last week, big theme at the dermatology conference. And uh, no, so also the whole social media reporting, live content creating teams are also definitely, uh, well, again, that's almost the new normal right uh it's become a hygiene factor do you feel that um on social media is there a when you're when you're working with clients is there a a kind of a, a metric or something that you look for when you say hey i think this is going to work on your social media or actually this isn't going to work on social media it'll fall flat you know like how do you tell because i'm sure a lot of clients are like hey we're going to go on social media it's going to be amazing and everybody's going to watch it yeah. and then you're kind of like yeah. Yeah. that might not actually happen is it is it is it dependent on how active uh, the social accounts are normally or are there other factors that you kind of look for this is funny you just changed this whole podcast topic from hybrid events back to social media but let's well, see what i, I, I can think say on the that. two are quite interchangeable in many yes. ways right because, because, it because let, let's watching. explain why to our audience because they are targeting a similar audience namely mm -hmm. people of your community who are not physically present at the event uh so but it's, no, it's I agree. a good point though because i i think that just because you're live streaming into a private platform that you have logged into or you're live streaming onto a social media channel, you could argue that similar. those two are very similar, right? They're the same thing. And it's one's an yeah. event and one's a live stream. But I think again, no, it's semantics, I right? I agree. Yeah, yeah. And you're asking me whether I can quickly identify what is going to work. I find that well, a challenging I find it very question. curious that, that you say that it's back, right? I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And, and I can understand to some perspective. Yeah, but, but what back. I could say, uh, yeah, let, let me add. Two occasions. Um, last weekend, this weekend, I was working on a big sporting event where there was no real dedicated social media team ready. But uh, we did, uh, like, again, this is a sport event, a triathlon. So we did the, the, the uh, athlete briefing in a Facebook Live instead of some kind of physical room where people had together while they were all over the place in their hotels and whatever. So that's why I had access to the Facebook and Instagram channels. And that then led to me also kind of feeling responsible to that. So, and, and since it wasn't my full role and responsibility, and I had a lot of other stuff to do, I then had to choose what is the bare essentials. And that's basically your question. So that, that is an uh, interesting comment. So bare essential number one is customer care, right? So anybody who reaches out with questions, comments, complaints needs to be taken care of. Well, I, I was able to do that. Bare essential number two is definitely 
having something there two or three times a day during the event. Again, this was a multiple day event. Obviously, in the, the pre-event day, we had a briefing and a press conference. On the day itself, luckily, there was also photographers who were able to do some, some first live photographers. And again, you talked about speed of publishing. This is such a nightmare for the professional photographers eh? because they want to shoot and then go in and, and edit and select. And here the social media team is just, just give me anything. I need something on my feeds and stories right now. Uh, and you shoot. I agree with that. So let's at least have something. Um, and, and so, now, so, so I, I was able to do that minimum. Yeah. And then just to finish off the conversation and uh, what I see happening now in the post race day, back to customer care, people demanding, yeah, so where is the photo album? Where is all the stuff? When is all the content coming? Right. And then, so, so yeah, be quick. Yeah. No. no, I think uh, my question was, it was slightly different, but I think it's really just that you went into that detail. It's more about when a client asks you to kind of get active on the social channels and transmit using their social feeds. Yeah. Is there a time when you say this isn't going to work because nobody's following you or, you know what I mean? Like making ah. that choice of like, are you sure this is a good, because I could see, I remember when we were working together, there was a lot of requests for this and it was kind of like, I don't think that's going to work. You know, sometimes you have to kind of pull back and say your, your social media accounts are dormant. Nobody follows you. Why would you want to stream on your social media accounts? You're like that. That's that's a question that I think probably comes yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, I agree, agree, agree. And so, but so I think it's relatively simple. If they are dormant, um, the event is your best opportunity to change that. <laughs> to wake them up, right? Because uh, again, talking about the momentum. If if at any time during the year people are interested to start following you on social media, it's in the last week leading up to your event and during your event. And so if you then change the design, the strategy, the focus and say, okay, let's change this. And I want to reach out to all that potential on social media. Now is the time. I, I think in the end, it doesn't really matter whether you do not have a following yet. You need to be smart that at the places where you do communicate with your audience, you then underline that this is now happening. So on and, and one of the best cases I've seen is the EAO, the uh, European Association of Osseo Integration that I worked with for many years. Once they went, they, they decided to go really big on YouTube. And the next conference, they literally had the promo for their YouTube channel everywhere, on every emailing, on every website, on a bit of, but also physically in the event. I have this whole map uh, still stored on my computer of all the outings at the conference from the backs of the shirts of the volunteers to the a, a, a badge on the on the on the physical badges so on the lanyards there was like a, a banner that said follow us on youtube like uh, banners in the venue in the holding slides everywhere they were activating that audience like we want you the rest of the years with us on youtube a whole other debate is whether putting all your scientific and smart content on YouTube is a smart thing. That is another choice. <laughs> Obviously, YouTube has an enormous reach. On the other hand, you're competing with cat feed. We, we know all the, the arguments why to do or not to do. And let's invite this listeners to this really long podcast now. If they want to go, go into that conversation, they reach it. <laughs> they reach Absolutely. out and, to and us personally. We, yeah. we may, you know, this may be part two of the podcast, if, if, if you will, if, if that makes more sense. Um, 
Quick, I mean, just on this one specific example, do you know if they are they trying to then monetize their YouTube channel? Nope, no. not at all. They just say this is pure marketing. We want to reach as many people, dentists in their case, across the globe as we can. Yeah. And this is our fastest way to reach them, we believe. I, I think it's an interesting choice. Like you said, medical things on YouTube is 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 kind of a little gray area. It's a little bit. I mean, I, I'm sure it's it's you know highly qualified and good content, but how much of it? And do again, you want to do? once they made that choice, I mean, pro the choice. It's it's available in almost. <laughs> We should say almost all countries, not in all countries. Mm -hmm. In a lot of countries, it's available definitely for their target audience. They can also justify. I mean, China is not a big market for them, so so they're willing to make that sacrifice. Um, yep. It is uh, a very easily played on any device and anything technologically very simple. Yes, you are competing with a lot of other videos, but now once they made this choice, um, it's 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 a game of consistency. They have been uh, leaning on this, this YouTube strategy for the last four or five years already, even pre-COVID. And if you just, like I said, we do the monthly Ask Me Anything, we do all the Congress reports, we do the hybrid, their Congress is also hybrid in a, in a sports style format, but then these um, uh, breakfast sessions at the start of the day or the lunch break sessions in our little studio are also then republished on YouTube, but not all at once. Hey, we talked earlier in this podcast about uh, should yeah. you be as fast as possible publishing? No, they say we drip feed, right? We do every week. We have a new video online on our uh, channels. Yeah, I think if you're going for a community approach, then it makes sense. And exactly. it's like you, you capture all this amazing content. There's so many you know important people in your industry at those type of events. If you can capture that, and then those things are useful after the event. If you know if they're only useful for that one week or one month, then it doesn't make sense. But if they are afterwards, then drip feed it becomes the content that you play with for the rest of the year, which I think is is very smart. Right. It makes me think of another client. This is a corporate event again. They wanted to build their thought leadership in their specific industry. They had their big client event, which was let's quote unquote say classical. So speaker on stage, keynotes, blah blah, blah uh, demos, all stuff. And in the end. They never, they were a client pre-COVID. In the end, they never dared to go live. So what it turned into was the biggest content production day of the year. Exactly what you say. All the important people are there. All their clients from all the different industries were there. So we were there set up with three different teams. One team capturing the content from the main stage. One team with a behind the stage studio that when a speaker would come off, they would immediately be set down. They would be invited to like do a summary interview of their keynote uh, talk or presentation. And that, that was then edited into a piece that where the interview was the teaser and the long format was a blend between the talk and the, uh, and the quotes on stage. And then upstairs in the, um, in the, in the catering area, so to speak, we had another little small studio where account managers were just pulling in quite a clients just to record all these client testimonials from the different industries and from the different stuff. And they, they pulled so much content from that one day of having everyone in one location. Yeah, I think it's the smartest thing you can ever do. And I think it's, it's the biggest, no, the, not the biggest, one of the biggest lost opportunities I see a lot of event planners make. 
which I understand because a lot of people and also agencies who produce events or conferences are often not the same people who are responsible for content marketing. Mm -hmm. So that's why these worlds don't collide. But if, if you take any tip away from this, try to see if you can get the content marketers and the events people on the same table before the event and make a, a great content production plan. Yeah, absolutely. Fully agree with you. I always think about that with many events that you work so hard at bringing these people from all around the world together, and then you don't capture that in some ways. And it's not about capturing the stage. A lot of times it's capturing everybody else that's there and finding a right. way to kind of, you know, cash in on that or at least capture it for, for using later. So absolutely incredible. And I think um, what we're doing now, the whole podcast is a whole new world of opportunities, right? Make sure you have your podcast recording studio on site, get all these interesting people in there. Or if you create video interviews, see if you can record them in such a way that they're easily transmissible also as a podcast. Those are mm -hmm. little smart things to think about. Are you a big fan of podcast studios at events? Yeah, from 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 this vision, from having all the industry leaders, interesting people in one location. So let's capture that. Yes, I am. Okay, interesting. What about, and this is sort of twisting that conversation a little bit, but what about the idea of um, pods, you know, going back to sort of extremes and hybrid pods where online audiences can connect with people that are there on site? You know, I guess in a way, a sort of a podcast pod, but but more of like a virtual meeting. Um, I saw a comment recently on on LinkedIn about somebody who's seen this happen at events and was very successful. And I think the majority of LinkedIn kind of said it doesn't work you're when you're not. trying to connect the online and online audience. But some people say that it has worked and, and it works very well with certain situations or certain preparations or whatever. Can, can, can you share a little bit more about this success case? Because my first response would be to knock it down as well, but that's not fair. If someone says this was a success, what, what, what made it successful? I need to, I need to uh, do some more research and find the, the one person who added the comments said she knew of multiple occasions where it happened. And she kind of suggested that it was more about the preparation and setting things up in advance and making sure that people were aware that these pods were there. And I think from an accessibility and sort of inclusion perspective, it does make sense, right? Because if you're physically not able to go to an event and you have the opportunity to be on the virtual side of one of these pods and you can get somebody to you know, interact with you, the person that you want to speak to to interact with you, obviously there's a huge amount of value there. Now, whether you want to kind of force that or kind of make that happen at and during an event, I don't know if that's really beneficial, right? That, like, that, just... That's where I'm struggling. That's where I'm struggling. I mean, back to the scale we talked about so much, a physical event is suited for experience. To me, online devices are often, uh, let's say, a challenge or a threat to the quality of the physical experience. So why would you go out of your home, out of your office, to a physical event venue where there's multi-sensory experiences in terms of design, color, food, smells, whatever, and then go either on your mobile or your laptop to do a Zoom call with someone else. Again, yes, there must be certain use cases where there is that is really useful because the main purpose of this whole event is one-on-one -on -one conversations and these are pre-scheduled and in that case, uh, if they're pre-scheduled, it shouldn't matter whether you're physically there or not. On the other hand, we could also argue, why would you then physically go to another place and not just have that Zoom meeting wherever you are, right? So that's, that's where it kind of 
creates a shortcut connection in my mind. It's like, why would I go to a physical place to then go into an online meeting? Yeah, it does feel like you could just book a call later on, right? To kind of right? make that work. Later. I would say that. But uh, again, maybe this is all has to do with momentum. Eh? So that could be a, a reason to do it. We said that Absolutely. before. We, we are touching on the topic of blending audiences. And, and I am aware and I've, I've been thrown at that, that I make it seem like they're really separated audience and have nothing together. Mm. Well, let's explore what they have together. Obviously, they have the same occasion together, momentum, date, time, place, well, not place, but at least they're around the same content. So yeah. yes, on social media, on hashtags and all that stuff, it doesn't matter if you're physically online, you could encounter and, and find each other there. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked earlier already about the Q&A tooling, where it doesn't matter whether you're physically or online in the room, where you could be uh, uh, a, a joint audience as well. And even back in the case uh, of ESOT 2019, but also in, in many other events, obviously, when there is a lot of investment in a big event app, where the presentations are there, or the papers, or the posters, or the attendees and the filtering, obviously, mm -hmm. it could be very easy to share access to that same event app also with the remote participants now allowing them to also participate into the virtual networking opportunities that the app offers or the gaming that the app offers. Uh, so any encounters that would be facilitated through a mobile app on a physical event would then also be facilitated with a virtual participant. It also makes sense to make people pay for access to that. Also at ESOLT, people had to pay a virtual ticket to, uh, to get access to the app and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. We're touching on a fund fundamental here um, and, and everything we say in this podcast, we might or I might make it sound like it's black and white. Of course, I'm, let me repeat <laughs> again, I'm super aware things are gray, but let's face it, how often do I really get in a new encounter to a mobile app networking device? I must say in my life, it hasn't happened that much. The only thing that I do find useful, find useful is kind of the filtering where you mm -hmm. can quickly say who else from my country is here or who else from, right? If, if they have these kind of filters and then you kind of know who to keep your eyes open to or, um, or if you're a speaker, that helps, right? If you've been a speaker at an event, you've been on stage, everybody has seen you, but they haven't seen, or, or you haven't seen them, then this kind of helps because they can reach out to you. But, uh, Let's face it, yeah. LinkedIn is a pretty good platform for that as well. Absolutely. And you could argue that events are the ultimate filters in a way, because you're filtering out from the whole world audience, those that are actually interested in a particular topic or a part of those that are interested in a particular topic. So in the long-term thinking of you know building connections, building a brand exposure, it all counts into the same kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Agree. So oh, any last you know, examples is, uh, that you want to share? Yes, we've been going for, for a long time. I want to, I want to start <laughs> wrapping up, but any, any last examples that you think are, are crucial that we should not miss from the kind of, you know, overview of, of the value of hybrid events? Yeah, well, uh, let's, let's add two short ones. I, uh, I refer for the third time now to the kind of the five formats we have. Uh, let's quickly uh, list them off. One is, the physical event being broadcasted, right? The televised sports stadium or conference or whatever, simple. But second format is to flip that around. Let's say we have a television studio, perhaps even with a, a, a live physical audience as well, but the focus is on the virtual audience and the mm -hmm. hosting and everything is done on camera. So uh, live TV in front of a studio audience, so to speak. Right? 
Exactly. And um, one of the key tips I mentioned in the summit yesterday is please, dear meeting owner, planner, producer, agency, whatever, make sure you choose. <laughs> choose who is the primary audience. And often that's determined by size. Often it's what is what audience is bigger. So in this example, in the corporate event, they had like their top two, now top 100, I think, in the room. They were the live audience to the studio because there were 1,200 people online. Mm -hmm. Well, you are nuts if you do not then decide, okay, let's flip it. Uh, we're going to host on camera. We're going to we'll talk to... Of course, obviously, every now and then, if something would happen in the room, you can, you can show that. But the primary audience in this case is a 1,200 people online audience so um sure. make that choice to your hosts to yourself to your budget holder to your suppliers and those of you who now think well i really cannot make the choice well then make sure you double up on teams and uh, make sure you have a dedicated team for the virtual audience and a dedicated team for the physical audience absolutely um second format uh i i think i'm gonna get lost on the phones L let's take uh, a, another one well the third format is the hub and spoke we talked that about so a central studio people and co-locations uh maybe one of the studio is also a, a, a one or a 200 300 person event but at least having multiple locations mm -hmm. production production wise super complex but fun if it works um Another one is where you start to separate things in time, but in this case, still on the same day, but you use it to bring in uh, your speakers uh, twice. So I've been in this event, the National General Physician Association, where the plenary was the plenary, plenary was live stream broadcasted. And then there was all these parallel sessions and they had breakout rooms where the physical audience would have a physical breakout. And then they would have, I think, two parallel studios set up where there would be the virtual breakouts for the virtual audience. And the speakers would then do their session twice, once for the physical audience and one for the online audience. So you capture again on the fact that people have prepared a session, that they're there, mm -hmm. but you do not create this awkward complexity in that breakout for that speaker, like who's my primary audience? Who do I focus on? Where do I look? Uh, you also limit yourself in production complexity. You have two dedicated online studios where you do. Just to be sessions. clear, so so the speakers are doing their breakout sessions in Twice. a live breakout and then yep. in a studio. But the the, yep. kind of the main stage sessions would be streamed the same. Exactly, for both. that was a classic yeah. plenary three cameras yeah. or four cameras in the room televised. I yeah. think that's really yeah. smart because it's one of those like behind the scenes production things where the virtual audience doesn't realize that the speaker is doing it twice. And unless oh. the speaker decides to mention it, like nobody else does either, right? Only the production team and the event owners know that. And the speaker knows. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the funny experience I had there, I was I was the main moderator in the plenary, but I was also asked to, to, to lead one of the breakout sessions. So I also had that experience of doing them twice. And mm -hmm. I would definitely argue the physical breakout gets better because you're not distracted by, oh, there's also a camera. I need to, to think and look and stay in the light and all that stuff. So that got better, but the interaction was very different. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this ha probably has to do with the raise your hand and ask a question thing versus live chat Q&A. Um, in, in, the, in the virtual session, the audience was, was, there was a very different tone. Somehow they were much more critical, negative, a little bit nagging. And mm -hmm. the, the beauty was we also from a speaker perspective, we just did the physical session 
So we were warmed up and that also for the quality of the video on demand content, we then did our online session. So that actually was better as well because it was the second time we ran the thing. Yeah, I was thinking in my mind that you could pre-record this and run them at the same time so that in the program you wouldn't even notice which one yeah, was which. That's a nightmare for your speaker. Yeah. Why? Because because then you don't get the interaction, right? You're not you're not it's not an event. Yeah, and I don't know how it's for you, but if you have to prepare for a presentation, again, the word momentum and I think it should be in the title <laughs> of the event. But also for you as a speaker, right? You you work towards that day where you do the session and then everything come together. So for me to do a presentation to a physical audience and then do it again to a camera is much easier and lighter and I'm, I'm full on in the zone than doing at some other time relevant, like a pre-record session and then on the yeah. day do it again. So that peak of interest is also important from the speaker's perspective. I think it's, also I would argue. Yeah. yeah, I would argue. Yeah. And the fifth, the fifth style, what have you got for us? Yeah, that's that's the one we mentioned really early where, where you spread out and make a blend of virtual encounters and physical encounters. So uh, let's say a series of webinars that lead up to a physical event or, or after, or, uh, right? That's when you take the, the, uh, the, the, the removing of the time constraints to a whole other level, right? You're kind of exactly. saying, I don't, it doesn't matter if people are not at peak interest. Actually, I want to make it to a more of a, a continuum. And in a way, that's more even more of a blend of the continuous learning with with the live events right it's kind of a fully agree so now you see the five formats in the one and two we just do the same thing but decide who's the primary audience in three we say well let's take place away and let's put people in different places in number four we start to play with time where we just produce dedicated online sessions and in five we really take away time and create some kind of a blend between virtual and physical uh, events Brilliant, Garrett. Uh, I want to I want to wrap up because we have definitely enough content for two uh, episodes, and maybe that's what this will become. We'll, we'll see. And uh, but really appreciate. And maybe you we. Uh, I, I put you on the spot, Miguel. But maybe this podcast generates so much questions that we do a, a follow up, a hundred percent ask me anything <laughs> question driven session as well. Well, there you go. Then we just have a, a regular weekly show uh, where we just do an ask me anything <laughs> on a weekly basis. On high rate events. Yeah. It'll be big on Reddit, right? We'll just uh, just let it explode. Great stuff, Garrett. Really appreciate you sharing all this with us. Um, still want to get your recommendation for uh, who else we should have on the podcast. Uh, we've had some fascinating guests, you being one of them. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and I must uh, admit, I uh, only recently caught on to the Event Manager podcast. So I'm still working my way back into the uh, recordings. One of the beauties of podcast, eh? it's timeless. You can, whatever you discover, you can go back and listen all to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been giving this some thought, but in the end, let's uh, keep it close to home. My business partner in live online events is uh, Gerdy Schroeders, another horrible name, Gerdy Schroeders. And um, after all these years in online events, she's also starting to develop her thoughts about so if we have all these resources if we have all these people together how can we use events for good she calls it philosophy for events Uh, it has to do with all the important challenges of the industry at at the moment sustainability diversity and inclusion but in general how can we start thinking and challenge ourselves to make the good choice and then what is the good choice that's the whole thing the philosophical part about it and mm-hmm. uh, she did a good uh, great session at uh, imax frankfurt 2022 about that so i think it would be worthwhile to listen more to her about that 
Fascinating. We'll definitely invite her to, to come and share. Um, this sounds like a really interesting angle. And I've heard of a few people trying to explore this, but uh, it's uh, it's not something that's that common. So I think it'd be really interesting to get her take on it. Cool. Appreciate the, uh, the recommendation. I appreciate your time, Garrett. Thank you once more. And uh, everybody listening, look up Garrett on social media. I think uh, LinkedIn and Twitter are your favorite channels. So I'm sure he'll be happy to uh, connect. Ah. I let, I let the Twitter go a little bit, uh, Miguel. So, uh, okay. yeah, LinkedIn. Look me up on uh, LinkedIn, definitely. All right. Garrett, been a pleasure. Thank you very much.